0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Anal Podcast. I'm your host, Sebastian Starr. And today I wanted to do kind of like a part two to my uh, Hamilton breakdown and analysis. So in the first uh, part of the Hamilton episode that I did, I uh, talked about um, the the rankings of the musicians and performers throughout the show and... Um, I didn't want to change up that order too much because I'm pretty sold on it. Um, I was actually listening to the soundtrack again today for like the thousandth time. And if I were to rearrange any form of the order that I had previously stated, because I believe that I had put um, Chris Jackson and uh, Jasmine Jones at like a tie for first place. And that judgment was basically based off of um the level of range and the amount of power that their voices have. So when you think about Jasmine Jones and the amount of power that her voice has, and at the same time, she is able to, you know, make her voice sound very, very soft and very, very, you know, innocent. And it's kind of like, I don't know what the word is to... To describe it but it's just like it's extremely impressive to me how you can go from sounding like a petite child to a seductive woman and with that seductive woman you really like push that you know what I'm saying so I would definitely keep her and Chris Jackson side by side because Chris Jackson's voice is very much so like you wouldn't expect it from that type of a person, you know what I'm saying? Chris Jackson, like I said, is a very big, strong, and intimidating guy. Um, but his voice is very, very powerful, and it's very, very gracious. It's not like scary, broody, and aggressive, but it's very, very gracious, strong, powerful, but it's and it's also like very simple and sweet. So It's it's not um, misleading to think that someone that big could have such a gracious voice, but I think that he manages to pull it off um, to the best of his abilities. Now, I will put Renee at number two, or I would probably put Renee, I would probably bump Renee up from her original placement from where I stated her at, because her voice, like I said, when you compare her voice to uh, Philippa So's voice, um... Philippa So's voice is very angelic, you know, um, and it's very, very soft, like a cloud or like cotton candy. Renee's voice is very it's not gritty. I used that word last time, and I don't want to make it sound like her voice is rough. Her voice doesn't sound like my voice. My voice is very, very scratchy and and, and 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 rough for a woman's voice. But her voice is very, very like mature. I think that's a better word to describe it. It's very mature. It's very um, elegant. So if anything, I would probably and I would probably bump Leslie Odom right up there with Renee and put them side by side because they both have that um, level of elegance to them. They both are very mature and very sophisticated. And even when Renee is rapping, her voice is still very, very sophisticated and it's very, very mature. Leslie, he doesn't rap, you know, throughout the performance, um, but when he does, you know contribute a couple of rhymes within his verses it's um, there is still that level of um, maturity and um, elegance there so I would definitely, because I put Leslie, Leslie Odom is my favorite singer, he's my favorite performer but I put him at the bottom as far as ranking uh, the singers go but thinking about it now and then I thought about it after I had finished the episode I don't want to put Leslie at the bottom because there is no way in hell that he does not outshine, you know what I'm saying, his co-stars. But he's also a leading man in the performance. Him and um, Lin-Manuel are the main characters of the show. You learn just as much about Aaron Burr as you do about Alexander Hamilton. And if you really think about it, they're basically the exact same person with two different mindsets. So... um, Yeah, I would definitely put Renee and Leslie on the same level, the same way I would put um, Jasmine and Chris on the same level, just as far as, not, not necessarily their performance, but this is based solely off of their vocal skills. And again, this is all just my opinion. I am extremely biased when it comes to Leslie, because like I said, he is my favorite character, and he actually made me want to keep watching the show. Um, I know in my last episode, I also talked a lot about um, Wait For It and Your Obedient Servant. But there were also a couple of songs that we didn't really get a chance to to dive into, which is why I'm doing this part two. one of those songs being satisfied. Now, again, as I said before, I listened to maybe just act one of this performance uh, it, back in 2016 when the show first came out, I listened to it, the soundtrack. Um, And Satisfied really, really stuck out to me because it's like, here you have this woman, Alexander, not Alexander, uh, Angelica. (laughs) Here you have this woman, Angelica, who meets this man, Alexander, for the very first time. It took three minutes for this man to woo her so much that everything that she knew about her life, every logic, every reasoning, every you know, society standard, that all just flooded out the goddamn window. Like, she didn't care that he was poor, that he was a soldier, that he was an immigrant, that he was young. None of that mattered to her. The only thing that mattered to her was that this handsome, charming young man has invaded my mind and my emotions and painted a picture of the perfect man and then put himself in that spot. And so when you get to Helpless, which is the song before Satisfied, you have um, Eliza who talks about the very first time that I laid eyes on you, I was strung. That was it. There was no no going back. There was no, like, trying to talk me out of it. I didn't know who you were. I didn't know what you were there to do, but I fell for you instantly. So who do I go to to talk about that? Oh, well, I go to my best friend, my big sister. Hey man, I know you see this dude over there in the corner. Like, he peeps, like, I'm peeping him out. Like, I, that's, that's me right there. I want that. And then you get to Satisfied and you find out that they're basically in love. Well, not basically, they are in love with the same person. And Angelica makes the sacrifice to allow Eliza to be with him because uh, there's a line in uh, Satisfied that kind of explains why she let. Uh, Eliza take Hamilton as her husband, and when you really, really think about that sacrifice, it's kind of fucked up what happens toward the end of the show. You know what I mean? So um, she says, um, Where, "Gosh, I should put this up." Okay, she says, "I'm damn, I passed." It. Okay, all right. So she says, "I'm a girl in a world in which my only job is to marry rich." My father has no sons, so I'm the one who has the social climb for one because I'm the oldest and the wittiest and the gossip in New York City is and the gossip in New York City is insidious and Alexander is penniless. That doesn't mean I want him any less. So that whole little tangent, this is right after uh, Eliza comes up to Angelica and is like, I want that one right there. And she's like, you know what, I got you. So she walks over to Alexander at the party. And she carries, she escorts him across the room to where um, Eliza is. And she's thinking to herself, I have a reputation of my own to protect. You know what I'm saying? My name carries so much weight. And my status is very, very important, not just to me, but to my family. And I cannot ruin that reputation by marrying somebody who is of lower class with no social standing, no credit, no money to his name, no real family. That I cannot risk losing that because I fell in love with somebody. And then, of course, at the end, Alexander does become this very high-powered and successful politician, but initially in the beginning, he's young, he's like in his early 20s, there's no way to know what this man is going to become. Regardless of what he's saying or what he's doing, there's no way that you can know for certain That he's going to excel and over exceed your expectations. So uh, once Eliza, not Eliza, once Angelica figures that out, gets that realization, she's like, I can't, there isn't anything else that I can do but allow my sister who loves him to have him. And then the second part of that um, line, well, not the second part of the line, but like the second part of that little section of the song. He's after me because I'm a Schuyler sister. That elevates his status. I'd have to be naive to set that aside. Maybe that is why I introduced him to Eliza. Now that's his bride. Nice going, Angelica. He was right. He will never be satisfied. So in the beginning of the song, um, she talks about meeting him for the first time. And he walks up to her and say, you strike me as a woman who's never been satisfied. You're like me. I'm never satisfied. And I think that says a lot about his character going into the rest of the show because this nigga is constantly doing shit without regards for anybody else's well-being, mental health, feelings or emotions in consideration. He does things because he feels like he has to do something, which you have to understand, this man is an immigrant. This man came to this country in search of a better life, better education to, you know, make a name for himself. He really came as like somebody who doesn't have anything to lose, you know? So he's not afraid to take risks. He's not afraid to put himself out there for rejection or embarrassment or success or whatever the case may be. So the fact that he was able to woo this very high class woman, In a matter of minutes, by just telling her, I can look at you and see that you're exactly like me. You want to push for the best every single time. You want the greatest. You want the absolute perfect treatment. You want all of it. And even when you get all of it, that's still not going to be enough for you. You want more. And I feel like that's like a form of manipulation. Like you can't do that. Like you can't take advantage of somebody who you know regardless of what they do they're still going to want more out of life and out of the people in their lives. And again, this is this 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 moment of the show is what kind of fucks me up because he's wooing Angelica. That's very very obviously clear that there is some type of connection between the two of them. Angelica's like, "You know what? As as much as I would love to fuck with you right now, I can I just can't do it. My name and reputation will not allow me to marry a man with no title, no money, no real name, no real legacy. Regardless of what you're telling me, I can't take that chance. So, but so instead, I'm going to pass you on to my sister, my younger sister, who she can marry whoever she wants. She's she's not responsible for keeping for maintaining my family's reputation. I am. So you can marry her and everybody's going to be happy except for me and except for you. Because even though you want a Skylar sister, because that will help you with your self-image and your reputation, you can't have this one. Regardless of how much I would love to and regardless how much you may like to, it just can't happen. So then you fast forward a little bit to the Reynolds pamphlet, and I love this. This is great, and this is one of the reasons why I'm, I put Renee and Leslie in the same category because of that elegance, like I was saying. So the Reynolds pamphlet is when uh, Hamilton basically snitches on himself. He he tells the entire world, yeah, I was having an affair with this woman. Uh, it went on for a couple of months. Oh, my God, Lord. Uh, it went on for a couple of months. And you know, my wife didn't know about it. and uh, I told some people. so in, but instead of waiting around for them to, for, for them to tell on me and ruin my reputation, I'm going to ruin my own reputation. So even uh, before I get to the Reynolds Pamphlet, let me backtrack just, just a tad bit. The song before the Reynolds Pamphlet is called Hurricane. And he's basically explaining to the audience, You know, whenever I was in a tough situation that I just couldn't seem to get out of, whenever my back was against the wall and I had nothing but devastation and destruction in front of me, the only way that I could see that I could escape this was to write. I wrote, he says, I wrote my way out of hell. I wrote my way to revolution. I was louder than the crack in the bell. I wrote Eliza love letters until she fell. I wrote about the Constitution and defended it well. And in the face of ignorance and resistance, I wrote financial systems into existence. And when my prayers to God were met with indifference, I picked up a pen. I wrote my own deliverance. This is the, like, this is just, like, pure arrogance. Like, yes, you are, your mind is so powerful and your words carry so much weight And you have so many people who are on your side as far as wanting you to succeed. And regardless of all of the obstacles that you had to face to get where you are, regardless of all of the people who try to stop you from being successful, and regardless of all of the people who were telling you, oh, you're just an immigrant, you're just a bastard, you're you're this, that, and third, you're never going to be, you know what I'm saying? Regardless of all of that, you managed to change history not make history, change history. You convinced the entire country to be on your side about whatever it was that you wanted to do. You held that much power. You could whisper into George Washington's ear and tell him anything. And that would ultimately influence his decision on what to do about something. So you took that power and you threw it into something that people could use against you, and you use it against yourself. Like, you really are your own worst enemy, because there is no reason. There's a song that got cut from the, from the plays called Congratulations. It's Renee, or Ella, um, Angelica Schuyler, confronting Hamilton about his affair with uh, Mariah Reynolds, and she was just saying how, you know, you literally just ruined your entire life for what reason? And um, I don't have the lyrics put up, but I've heard the song enough times to really just do a brief little analysis on it. Um, And that song would have gone between uh, the Reynolds pamphlet and Burn, which I think the reason why they cut it was because Eliza is Hamilton's wife. So she is the one who is more impacted by this than Angelica. But Angelica is also in love with him. So she does feel betrayed. And there's a part in the song where he was like, You don't understand the sacrifices that I had to make in order to make this happen. I did what I had to do. And she's like, you want to talk to me about sacrifices? I spent years in a loveless marriage in London with a man who I have nothing in common with that I don't even like so that my sister could marry you. There was once a point in my life where I wanted to choose you over anybody else, but my sister was in love with you. And I allowed her to be happy with you for years, so I sacrificed so much more emotionally, mentally, physically, even to let this let your lives be what they were, and then you just betrayed her like this. And then the, the fucked up thing about the Reynolds pamphlet is, say, let's go back to um, helpless and satisfied. If Hamilton had, if Alec, if Angelica had decided to marry Hamilton and not allow Eliza to marry Hamilton, he would have just cheated on her too. And that's probably why she felt some type of way about it because it's like, you're, you're exactly right. You're never satisfied. And she even says that in, uh, toward the end of the Reynolds path she comes back from London and, um, he's like, Oh, thank goodness. Angelica, you're here. I've been, I've been stressing about this for so long. And she's like stiffed on the shit. I'm not. She literally says, I'm not here for you. Like, what what the hell makes you think that this woman who who was crazy about you, who adored you, who admired you, and then allowed her sister to marry you, knowing that if she wanted to, she could have had you, and then you write an article in a newspaper that you founded and published about an affair that you had that happened over a decade ago, And, and you, you expect me to, to, to be like, oh, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm, I understand. No, no, no. You broke my sister's heart, bro. What the hell makes you think that I am going to be vouching for you in anything that you do? She, and she says, with what we had aside, I'm standing at her side. You could never be satisfied. God, I hope you're satisfied. Like you really just fucked your entire life up. And for what? Like, why, why did you why did you do that? <laughs> like why? You could have it could have been a secret. We would have found out later and it would have been our business. It would have been the family business. But you told the entire world about your affair with this woman because you told James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and Aaron Burr. So you didn't want any of them to go out and say, Hey, I heard this thing about him. So you're gonna just tell yourself like In any other sense, this would have been a noble thing to do. It would have been, you know, like, I can't think of the word to describe it. It would have been a noble thing for somebody to do, to confess to the mistakes that they've made. But he literally didn't have to do that. He could have confronted his wife about it. They probably could have worked it out amongst themselves. And 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 it would have been within their family, but you told the entire world about your affair with this woman, and you expect me, my wife's, your wife's sister, to be okay with this shit. No, I'm not okay with it. That's fucked up. So um, I didn't give Renee enough credit the last time, and I really wanted to highlight some of those moments that really, she really stood out and outshined. And even in the Skylar Sisters song, she takes the lead because she's the oldest out of the three. But she also takes the lead because her character is the most superior and the most powerful. So when you go back to the Skylar Sisters song, her first little, like, tangent, um, uh, she's talking to Burr, Burr walks up, um, excuse me miss I know it's not funny but your perfume smells like your daddy's got money but you're slumming in the city with your fancy heels searching for an urchin that will feed you ideas and um, I love and I love that back and forth it's very very brief There's, it's not too much back and forth between Angelica and Burr but just that little snippet right there was enough to be like okay I'm fucking with you because she knows why everybody wants her She, they want her because of who her father is not because of who she is. So then she gives you a little taste of who she is as a person. And I can never, <laughs> i will trying to re- uh, re- recite these verses. I can never get this all the way through. I've only gotten it all the way through maybe three times. Um, she goes, I've been reading Common Sense by Thomas Paine. Some, some may say that I'm intense or I'm insane. You want a revolution? I want a revelation. So listen to my declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And when I meet meet Thomas Jefferson, I'm going to compel him to include women in the sequel. So right off the bat, from that little tangent alone, you can already tell that Angelica Schuyler is, for one, a feminist. She's all about gender equality, gender-neutral ideas, laws, regulations. Um, she's convinced that women are powerful in their own sense. They have the ability to think on their own and do their own thing and whatever it is that they want to do, they should be able to do that. And the fact that she's the oldest out of three daughters, she has her father's ideals that, you know, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you put your mind to it. And that's why she's never satisfied with anything because she's a woman fighting for equality. Alexander, on the other hand, isn't satisfied with anything because he's just greedy as hell like he just wants more and more and more every time like, he's constantly writing and he's constantly working, and he's constantly just pushing out pieces of himself to satisfy himself, but it never seems to work so um let's if you drop down to nonstop, which is the last song of the first half of the show uh toward the end of it um. George Washington asks Hamilton if he can uh, come with him to the White House and be, you know, his uh, secretary. Which I don't know why he didn't just um, ask him to be his vice president, but that ain't got nothing to do with uh, with what he got going on. So at the end of the song, uh, it's Alexander and Eliza going back and forth like, "Why can't you just stay here with me? Why do you have to keep working? Why do you have to keep doing everything?" and and then you know the 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 rest of the company starts to chime in so Eliza's like isn't this enough and Alexander is like they're asking me to lead and Angelica's like he will never be satisfied and George Washington is like history has its eyes on you and then Burr is like why do you write like you're running out of time the thing about Alexander Hamilton is that this nigga wrote all day every day. And I feel like for one that's great because if you are a child coming out of poverty looking to make a name for yourself then the only thing that you know how to do is write and speak and read. And that's all he ever did was write, speak and read. And he used that to climb that ladder and be a more powerful, intimidating individual. But he also used it as a weapon against himself or against other people. So there's a there's a snippet in um, one last time where uh, right in the beginning, uh, Washington comes up to Hamilton and is like, um, uh, I'm, "I'm I'm here to give you a word of warning." And Hamilton's like, um, "I don't know what you heard, but whatever it is, Jefferson started it." And then Washington goes, "Thomas Jefferson resigns this morning," and he was like, uh, "And he's like, man, I can't believe this is great. You can finally." you know, step up to the plate and do your thing and no one's going to stop you, you don't have any obstacles anymore. And he's just talking about how much he's going to write away with Jefferson. right as in writing, not write as in left and right or right and wrong. Um, he's like, I want to write him and put him in the press. And I want to expose him for everything that he is. He's this and he's that. I want to help you with your statements and your re-election and all of that good shit. And he's just like, you got to stop. You have to stop. The only thing that I want you to do is write my resignation and my final speech to the people because I'm not doing this anymore. I'm, I'm done. I've done everything that I needed to do. And it's a little humbling on George Washington's part to step down from the mantle, but at the same time, it opened up the doors for people like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, to kind of slither in and fuck shit up. So it's, this is the beginning of the country's history, here so it really just kind of reflects and then Thomas Jefferson petty ass is um he gets elected as president and this nigga says uh uh you you talking about our partnership you ran against me campaign wholeheartedly trying to beat me out of this race you talking about a partnership uh and then James Adams is like it is kind of crazy how the dude who comes in second gets to be vice president he's like oh we can change that That's that can be that can be fixed. And it's just like, but that's kind of fucked up. Um, And and also I've seen clips of the original cast talking about just the show in general. And apparently and this is hilarious to me. Apparently, uh, while Thomas Jefferson was in France and Angelica Schuyler was in London, at some point. They cross paths, maybe in Paris or something like that, some kind of central meeting place, and um, it's always been Angelica's goal to meet Thomas Jefferson and convince him to, you know, change the laws and the Constitution to allow women to be just as equal as men, because even at this time, women weren't even able to vote, you know what I mean? So, at some point, they come in contact with each other, and then when uh, Jefferson comes back to the U.S., he supposedly got in the Hamilton face was like... Oh, yeah, tell Angelica I was like, I said, what's up? You know what I'm saying? Because he knows, whether he knows it or not, Alexander and Angelica had some type of thing going on at one point. So to think of Thomas Jefferson, who is inevitably Hamilton's rival, having a fling or a one-night stand or whatever the case may be with the girl that he was crushing on before he got married is like a shot to the face. And I just think that's hilarious. Um, And I wish they would have left that little detail in there because it just would have brought that that rivalry to life. Like It really would have solidified their hatred towards each other. And that would have later made the sting of betrayal when Hamilton endorses Jefferson for presidency against Burr that that would have made it so much more. So not only do you hate this guy, you hate his policies, you hate everything that he stands for and what he agrees with. You hate everything about him. He hates everything about you. And he was supposedly messing around with the girl that you originally wanted to marry, but you ended up marrying her sister. And then you endorse him for presidency against a man who not only introduced you to your gang of of fellows, and introduced you to, you know, the revolt and the rebellion and helped you come up, and you basically mirrored this man's life, your entire political career, and everything you stand for is a mirror image of what this man did. Y'all agree with each other on every single standing point, but you endorse your enemy over him instead. That just would have been an even more, like, Back to the f- it just would have made it so much more satisfying with that knowledge to the audience. But um, but like I said, if you're a historian, you already probably know about all of this, so it's nothing new to the historians. But it could have been something new to the audience, because like I said, I I didn't know anything about none of this until after I saw it, and I was like, wow, that's pretty, um, that's intense. It's a lot going on. And it just makes it even more interesting when you think about the historic accuracy throughout the show. And I even remember seeing a clip of uh, David Diggs, who plays Thomas Jefferson, and Renee, he was saying that he used that as an excuse to get closer to her during their performance. But there isn't a single time throughout the actual final production where uh, Alex. Uh, Angelica and Thomas Jefferson are even in the same room. But it is noted that they were at some point in cahoots with each other. She apparently got into his ear and convinced him to go with a bunch of policies that he later, you know, fulfilled throughout his presidency. So, it's just interesting. It's just very, very interesting. And I think the chemistry throughout the entire cast is worth noting. Everyone is really, really close with each other. Everyone is really, really good friends with each other. There's no you know, bitterness, there's no uh, tension, there's no, like, envy, none of that shit. Everybody's super, super cool, which if you're doing a show this significant for as long as they are all doing it, you don't have a choice but to be close with these people. And but I do wonder, like with any artist, to have to perform the same songs over and over and over again, I feel like you would eventually get tired of hearing yourself saying the same things, But at the same time, a lot of the people in the original cast used Hamilton as a stepping stone. Some of them were already doing their own thing. I I know that for a fact. A lot of them were already in other shows and performances. Lin-Manuel used a nice little chunk of this cast in a musical that he had produced before. Um, And then, of course, he used those same characters in a movie musical that he produced afterwards. Um, and, of course, some people who were in performance were already doing Broadway. They were already doing musicals and all of this and all of that. But a lot of these people, you know, they won awards. And they got to do other, you know, they it opened up the door for them to get their foot in and do other things that they probably didn't even think they were able to do. I know for Davey Diggs, he originally wanted to be a rapper. And he still makes music. So he really used Hamilton to kind of fund his true goals and aspirations. And I don't think that he has a problem with what he's doing as far as Hamilton goes. And his, his characters are iconic. Like, how do you not remember seeing this man's face or hearing this man's voice? Everything about him is so distinctive. Like, how can you not, you know what I mean? So I'm pretty sure a lot of these people are very grateful for the opportunity that they got to do Hamilton, but I do often wonder, and this is about any artist, um, if they just get tired of hearing the same things or doing the same things over and over again. Which I'm sure you do, which is why you venture off and do other things. You experiment with different, you know, um, plugs of entertainment. You may want to go to producing or writing, or you know, you might want to just go into directing, or maybe you want to do TV shows rather than Broadway, or you do movies. I know Leslie Odom Jr. was in Harriet, which is the story of Harriet Tubman, and that's a fantastic movie. I know both Chris Jackson and Philippa So have done voice acting since. Uh, Chris Jackson is the father for Moana, or at least he sings the song for the father in Moana, and I think that's hilarious. Um, And I think Philippa So was in a movie that's on Disney Plus now, uh, The Amazing Ivan, or something like that. Um, it's an animal movie, so she plays an animal in it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great stepping stone, but it's also a fantastic opportunity to be a part of history. Because when you think about the time lapse that all of this took place, the late 1700s, early 1800s, that was just 200 years ago. So, 200 years ago, none of the people who were in this production would have even existed as actual people, you know what I mean? Like, The the cast is so diverse and they're able to portray the original founding fathers on stage in front of thousands of people, which translates into millions of people who have seen the show, whether live or on Disney Plus, who have heard the soundtrack and who take that with them into other parts of their lives. So it just shows incredible progression that the country has made, even though we still have a very, very long way to go. It does show incredible progression that these select individuals were able to come together and create something beautiful based off of the history of the country that we all live in. And I think that is definitely uh, noteworthy Um, and people really need to take uh, take all that into consideration. Um, And I think as far as clearing the airways. In comparison to my last video, when it comes to talking more about the female singers, so I definitely focused in on um, Leslie Odom, and I just can't help it, man. That's 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 the homie. Like he's my favorite character. He was my favorite performer. Um, the fact that he won for best leading role in a musical for him, I've seen the clip. I've seen the clip. You got the a, a good chunk of the entire cast backstage at the Tony Awards you have Lynn Manuel and Renee they're in the audience probably accepting awards of their own and it shows uh Neil Patrick Harris presenting the award and he calls Leslie's name and Lynn Manuel even like does a congratulatory like yes in the audience you can see the excitement on it. everybody's face backstage they are going crazy for him like so I feel like part of the reason why Lynn Manuel was so excited that Leslie won was because it's, it just shows just how powerful Aaron Burr's character is in the performance. And it's noteworthy for the audience to look at that and just go, wow. So he really, you know, he, you really do, when you think about it, you really do learn just as much about Burr as you do about Hamilton, and you probably sympathize more with Burr than you do with Hamilton, but at the end of the day, he is considered the antagonist. He's, he's, he's just as much of a leading man, but he is considered the antagonist in the story. So I think he was so excited when he won because it's like you really get that recognition. I got enough recognition for this performance. I wrote it, I starred in it. Um, you know, So much has contributed from you know things that I had to do. It took him eight years to finish Hamilton. And even as they started the production and, and performing and rehearsing and all of that, he was still making changes throughout the entire show. So he gets enough credit. So for him to to want that credit to really go to somebody else who he believes deserved it probably more than he did shows a lot of um, the, the humanity behind Lin-Manuel Miranda. And, of course, the artistic talents of Leslie Odom Jr., who rightfully won the award. And and when I say the entire cast was like wildin back. They were loud and they were as soon as you didn't even get the full name, you just got the la. That's all they heard was la, And then his face popped up on the screen. Uh clips from the performance, you know, the room where it happened, they showed a little clips of that. And it's just like they they love and support everybody so much. Even Renee was in the crowd. Standing ovation, you know what I'm saying? So it's just, it's just so nice to see that everybody. And I feel like everybody won an award for that. Anybody who was in it, they won something. So, um, it's just, it's just, it's just nice to think that these people aren't just performers on a stage, but they really are like a family to each other. Like they've been doing this for so long together. Don't nobody really know what they're experiencing but themselves. And they can look back at this in 10, 12 years and just reminisce on how amazing all of this has been on their lives and how it's impacted them and their families moving forward. And they can use that to their advantage in any field of entertainment they choose if they wanted to. But I feel like I feel like theater performances or theater performers, anyone who's on like Broadway or in musicals, they're pretty sold on that like you 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 know that you want to do this for the rest of your life type shit so you don't really let um other things uh interrupt that unless it was just like i said a stepping stone used to get from point a to point b and that's totally fine because it's still entertainment at the end of the day but i feel like most people who do theater they stick with that like they have a very very strong passion for it for being on stage for the endless rehearsals and perfecting the songs and their vocals and going through that entire routine it is exhausting but you wouldn't do it if you didn't love it um i think i think that that's all that i have to say about hamilton um i really 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 am borderline obsessed with uh this show the music is so amazing not even just the the vocalist but the music itself when you i want to dip back just for a hot second to the battle of yorktown the violins were going ape shit crazy during the like fight montage like where there's no singing at all it's just music and instrumentals and they are just going crazy crazy with it and it's just like that is insane i seen a snippet of just the violinist like underneath the stage playing, and they are just moving. Everyone is in sync. Everything is so like perfectly put together, like this beautiful puzzle piece. And I haven't heard anything like that in such a long time that I almost forgot what it sounds like to just have music playing. And then, of course, throughout the rest of the show, there is plenty of other great music That comes from the actual musicians, the composers who came up with the music to fit the lyrics that Lin Manuel had written. You know, they worked together extensively. I think I saw somewhere that um, the most difficult song to compose was The 10 Dual Commandments. And I have no idea why. (laughs) They said why, but I just can't remember why. But that, when you think, when you listen to that song, the back and forth and jumping around from one artist to another. I guess that can kind of throw you off if you're just expecting to hear one person because I know they have their microphones cut on and off at a certain time, so maybe that's why it was so difficult. Um, But the music for that is very, very much like step-by-step. Like you can really just, you can follow it very, very easily. But then when you get to Meet Me Inside, that song is very, very hard to follow because the time signature, I believe, is 7-8, so it's very, very, like, you really got to keep the rhythm in your head be, to follow it because the words kind of just spew out like they're just having a regular conversation, but they're always, always on beat with that 7-8 time signature. And that's impressive because I'd get throw the fuck up and, and, and slip out and either miss the beat or come into some type of shit because 7-8 is so fucking complicated if you're not used to it. The standard is 4-4. Four, four. You can get away with the 3-4, even a 2-4. Um, and then if you do go 8, you go like 6-8, which is basically 3-4, but a little bit faster. But 7-8 um, is so offbeat that it just kind of stumbles you up just a little bit. So that would have been my biggest challenge, would have been meet me inside. And I literally, when I'm listening to it and I'm driving, after I found that out, I was like, okay, now I can keep up. Because I didn't know at first, and I was like, bro, what the hell? I feel off balance like shit. Um, but when I found out it was seven, eight, it made it much, much easier for me to to follow. So once I figured it out, it was like, okay, I can, I can do it now. Uh, so I can only imagine what it was like for everybody else. But again, these are trained professionals. They've been doing this for forever. It was probably nothing to them to, to keep up with the seven, eight time signature, uh, which if you don't know what that means... Uh, the top number, when you're look looking at sheet music, the top number represents the uh, number of notes in each measure, and the bottom number re- uh, represents what note gets the one beat. So, for example, the standard, like I said, is 4-4, four, four, which means there is a total of four notes in each measure, or the value of four notes in each measure, because you can have, like, eight eighth notes, and that's the same thing, so... Um, And then the bottom number equals uh, a quarter note. So quarter being four, four quarters make one whole note. So if you took four quarter notes, I know this is probably very confusing and I'm not good at explaining shit. You take four quarter notes, one, two, three, four. That's standard. One, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, three, two, three, four. That's four, four. And then if you split that up into eighth notes, it's one and two and three and four and then so on and so forth. And then you got half notes. So you just got one, two, 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 and then you got whole notes, which is the same thing. So for seven, eight, there is a total value of seven notes in each measure, and the eighth note gets the one beat. So you got an eighth note, which if 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 you're any kind of musician, if you took music in elementary school, middle school, high school, the bare minimum, you know what a staff looks like, The five lines and the four blank spaces, Uh, you know what a quarter note looks like. It's a little ball with a stick on it. And the eighth note is the little ball with the little stick with the little flag at the top. It got the one little flag. One of them gets one beat. So that means there are seven of them little balls with a stick and a flag in one measure. So it goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 2, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 3, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 4, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Like that is insane to me. Like it's so hard to follow if you don't know what it means. But once I figured it out and I'm listening to it, I'm just going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 2, 2, 3. And it makes it so much easier to follow how the conversation flows between, you know, Lawrence, Hamilton, Burr, and Washington, because they're the only ones talking in, in the first half of Meet Me Inside. And then, of course, the second half, it goes right back into, like, 4-4, maybe 8-8, whatever the fuck. Um, It doesn't sound like it slows down, so I probably bumps up to 8-8 instead of 4-4. But it's all the same thing. Um, That was my little tangent on... Uh, <laughs> I haven't had a good strong healthy conversation about actual music with anyone in a very very long time like I said I'm not very good at explaining how it works I know how it works I'm just I can't tell you because the way that I learned how to do it was a little different from the way everybody else learned how to do it I'm a terrible terrible sight reader I can't sight read for shit um, yes I know my scales major and minor I know my arpeggios. I know my chords. I know a couple of chords. I don't know know all of them, but I know a good little handful. Uh, I did play uh, in choir. Not choir. Well, I was in choir for a long time. I was in concert band from about fifth grade up until I dropped out of college. So I am very, very familiar with actual like music, like sheet music. I'm very, very familiar with it. I'm just not good at explaining it to other people. So I don't get to have these conversations very often. So when I do, I get a little excited. And it's it's all muscle memory. It's all like probed into my brain somehow. And it's not going anywhere. I just don't have much of a use for it nowadays. I don't have my instrument around. And it's just very, very difficult to keep that going if you don't have anything to play on or play with. So, But that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that concludes... Uh, my tangent for Hamilton. I might go back again, and if I miss anything about anybody on the on the program, I apologize. But I really just kind of hit the points that I personally wanted to talk about because, like I said, there was a lot of things for for me that kind of reminded me of how much I do appreciate good musicianship. I, I'm how much I appreciate great performances, great vocalists, great musicians. It really Put me in a in a sense of nostalgia during a time where all I did was sing and and play music all the time. And and I don't get to do that too much. So whenever I do listen to Hamilton, it really just brings me back to there was one there was once a point in your life where you did this all the time. But now the the reality of being an adult in this day and age is very, very depressing because you don't get to do the things that you used to do when you were younger. And I wish I could have taken more advantage of that then, so I could appreciate it more now. But I do appreciate it very much now, and it does resonate with me. So thank you for tuning in once again. I appreciate the love and support. And until next time, I will uh, hear from you guys later.